and he says, if only there were a little bit more get-together, face-to-face, conversation, maybe some of these other issues would be resolved. So he realizes that there's a big difference between fighting on the level of ideas and actually being together with one another, listening to one another's hearts, getting to know one another personally, getting to know not only what someone believes, but why they believe it. And he is transformed by this. This changes him. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Diana Glyer teaches in the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University. Her writing and research focus on C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the other Inklings. Her most recent book is The Major and the Missionary. Dr. Glyer edited this collection of letters between Warren Lewis, the brother of C.S. Lewis, and Dr. Blanche Biggs, a medical missionary in Papua New Guinea. Their conversation spans faith, literature, fear, doubt, tragedy, sickness, health, friendship, and life and death itself. Diana Glyer, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast. Excited to talk about uh, The Major and the Missionary. I am so pleased to be here. The Major and the Missionary is a labor of love. 25 years in the making, and I'm so glad to be able to share it with you and your listeners. Wait, 25 years? You you rounded up these letters 25 years ago? I did. I stumbled across them while I was doing some research in the Wade Center in Wheaton College. As you know, we're very fortunate in the study of Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings that there are a number of special archives throughout the country, actually throughout the world, that specialize in collecting letters, diaries, books, and so on. The premier study center for those of us who love Lewis and Tolkien is the Wade Center at Wheaton College. And So I happened to be there working on a different project Mm -hmm. 25 years or so ago. I was working on um, what I guess I would say is my magnum opus, a book called The Company They Keep, that looks at the inner workings of the Inklings. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Company They Keep is an answer to the, the question, what would it be like to be a fly on the wall when the Inklings met to talk about their manuscripts? And that was a major project. And I really wanted to dig down into the primary documents for that project. And along the way, I stumbled across this series of letters that uh, has now become the major and the missionary. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we got to back up a little bit. (laughs) Well, no, maybe we're, no, I guess we backed up all the way 25 years ago. Now we need to fast forward, I guess. what is the major of the missionary? Um, tell me about, describe to our listeners what this book is. Okay, that's great. So the major and the missionary is not a novel and it's not an academic book that explains or describes an event. The major and the missionary collects a, a group of letters between two really remarkable people. There are 87 letters that have been collected, edited, and annotated. And these letters are between a retired army major named Warren Hamilton Lewis, the older brother of C.S. Lewis, right? And a medical missionary called Dr. Blanche Biggs. Now, Dr. Biggs was from Tasmania, and she was serving as a missionary doctor in Papua New Guinea. And the way that their friendship started is that uh, 
Blanche Biggs was a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And so because she wanted to really learn about Lewis firsthand, she got her hands on a copy of the letters of C.S. Lewis, which had been edited by Warren Lewis after Lewis's death. And so she uh, reads these letters and she thinks, this is really fantastic. I want to write to the editor of this letter collection and I want to find out more. She has some questions about those uh, collected letters. So Blanche Biggs in Papua New Guinea sends a letter to Warren Lewis, who's living at the Kilns in Oxford, primarily to say thank you for editing your brother's letters, mm -hmm. but then also to ask uh, about her own letters, about her own work and her own legacy. And so we have uh, at the Wade Center the entire correspondence, 87 letters between Warren Hamilton Lewis and Dr. Blanche Biggs. And Jonathan, that's what I discovered when I was doing this other research. I sort of came across, well, picture it this way. Picture me there at the Wade Center, day after day after day, going through scraps of paper, random letters, bits of diaries, old manuscripts. And I'm looking through all of this, piles and piles, boxes and boxes of it, for any scrap of information about what the Inklings said to each other and what difference it made to the books that they were writing. So morning after morning, I'm going through letter after letter. I'm in this set of letters by Warren Lewis. Now, he was a historian. I don't know if you knew that, but that was his sort of avocation, studying the study of history. And so he kept really, really good records of a lot of the events that affected the Inklings. His perspective is the eye of a historian. He notes the important cultural uh, components of that. So I was particularly interested in his material. So I'm going through his material and all of a sudden out of the blue, I see this letter from this missionary doctor in Papua New Guinea. The juxtaposition didn't make sense to me. I thought at first, well, I thought at first maybe one of the librarians had made a mistake because <laughs> yeah. I'm going through these letters by Warren Lewis. And all of a sudden there's a letter from someone else to Warren Lewis, uh -huh. right? So the Inklings didn't keep letters that people sent to them. We keep letters that are written from the Inklings, but they didn't keep letters that people wrote to them. So here's this, I thought, how nice. Here's a nice letter, interesting letter, thoughtful letter from a fan of Warren Lewis. And I thought, well, that's nice that they included this in this little pile. And then I moved on and I was I was shocked, honestly shocked. That's the only word I can use. That after that, there was a response to that letter from Warren Lewis to Blanche Biggs. Yeah. So all of my decades of research, primary research is one of the things I love best. All of my decades of research, I had not, not ever seen two letters in a row. So when you think about like, when you read a letter collection, you're reading all one side of the conversation. Yeah. And it's like any time you're hearing just one side of a conversation, you have to constantly be filling in like, um, you know, they'll say th something like, thank you for that lovely story. Or I'm so glad that you read the same book that I did. And you're like, what book are they talking about? Or what story yeah. do they meet? You know, we have to kind of fill that all in. So I saw two letters in a row and I thought, this is really special that we have both sides of the correspondence. Because not only in Inklings studies, not only in the study of Lewis and Tolkien and their friends, but just in 
history, any historical figure that you could think of, a political figure, a literary figure, when we publish their letters, they're all one side of the conversation. We don't have the other side. So I was astonished to find that there weren't just two letters or three letters. Or, there are 87 <laughs> letters, the complete correspondence that forms a bridge of friendship and affection between these two people. We even, <laughs> we even in the collection have a couple of handwritten notes and a couple of postcards that Blanche and Warney sent to each other when they went on vacation. So that's, I that's really surprising because one reason we have I so many both sides is because she kept the carbon copies, right? That's correct. So that's why we have it. Uh, Blanche Biggs describes herself as an inveterate hoarder. Mm -hmm. And she uh, actually writes to Warren in the first place with the purpose of asking a question, what should I do with all of this material that I've collected over a lifetime? And she suggests that maybe what needs to happen is a big bonfire, that she just needs mm -hmm. to set it all aflame, you know. And uh, so she keeps carbon copies of the letters that she sends. And she carefully keeps each note and letter that she receives from Warren Lewis. Mm -hmm. And then uh, before her death, she donated the whole packet to the Wade Center at Wheaton College. So researchers like me could discover them sometime yeah. later after their death. Do are there you, you mentioned handwritten yeah. notes and cards? Are there handwritten notes and cards that that Warren Lewis saved from her that are in that collection? Not not that we have, but we have mm -hmm. references to those sometimes in the letters. So I've mm -hmm. annotated them with notes about any of these handwritten uh, letters. Some mm -hmm. of Warren Lewis's letters are handwritten, mm -hmm. so we have this entire correspondence uh, yeah. as it exists. Um. And I, I, it's fun to see over the course of this correspondence. By the way, she was, these were middle-aged to maybe even older than middle-aged people exchanging letters, right? She was about 60 when she started sending these letters to Lewis. And She's he was nearing 60. She's He's nearing in his 60. 70s. That's right. And, and then it's um, about eight years worth of letters. Is that right? About five years. Oh, five years. Okay. Over okay. a period of about five years. And you can see them kind of warming up with each other over the course of the, of the thing <laughs> that from respectfully yours to fondly or, or I, now I don't remember the exact uh, salutation or the what do you call it? the at the end? You call that a salutation at the end? The salutation is the, um, the, the, the yeah, the conclusion the of the, each letter. So the sign off is uh, it definitely changes over time as does the request that comes in at one point for them to use their first names. Mm, and this would have. Yeah. That seemed like a big deal to us, but it would have been kind of a big deal for them to refer to one another by first name, to sign first name. And it's really fun to see these letters as they go on from yours sincerely to affectionately yours. And I don't know what you know about Warren Lewis, but to think about this big, gruff, retired yeah. army major yeah. signing his letters affectionately <laughs> yours is pretty sweet. It's really, yeah. uh, it, it becomes very moving. Look, what, what happens in these letters is unusual. So if I was listening to somebody talk about a letter collection, I'd say, well, it's kind of fun to read somebody else's mail. But what I would be expecting is kind of a random selection of interesting and varied letters. Mm -hmm. That's not what this 
is. Uh, it is such an interesting story. It is, well, one of my friends likes to call it an almost romance. <laughs> and what makes it almost is an interesting question. But uh, it you see a deepening of their relationship, and there are really important reasons for this. So it starts out with her inquiry. She writes to him, she thanks him for his book, and then she asks a practical question. How did these letters survive? And she's thinking about what to do with her own letters and her own papers. They become, over time then, pen pals, where they just basically write letters back and forth describing daily life. So anyone who's interested in daily life in Oxford in the 1960s and 1970s is going to find so many interesting details. Um, uh, anyone who's interested in Papua New Guinea and, and the uh, mission field there is going to get firsthand accounts of missionary life in Papua New Guinea during this season. But as they write, they become confidants. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. So Warren Lewis is now the keeper of his brother's legacy. C.S. Lewis has died. Visitors keep coming. Mail keeps coming. Publication opportunities keep coming. And he is doing his best to figure out how to steward C.S. Lewis's legacy the best that he knows how. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. And yeah. he doesn't have trustworthy people to talk with about this responsibility. On the other hand, Blanche Biggs, well, she's the chief hospital administrator in a very, very um, underdeveloped area, poorly resourced area of Papua New Guinea, where they're trying to get these missionaries are trying to get a foothold and trying to do something to address the widespread problems of tuberculosis and leprosy. Mm -hmm. And she's got all of these responsibilities. Who is she going to confide in, right? As the head mm -hmm. administrator, she doesn't really have someone that she can pour out her heart to. Well, what happens is during the course of these letters, there's a, there's a scandal at the hospital. I won't go into detail, but she is, Blanche is uh, overwhelmed by this. Uh, it is uh, more than she knows how to deal with. And so she pours out her story to Warren letters or Warren Lewis in her letters. And she, um, she apologizes. She says, I hope I haven't been too frank. I hope I haven't imposed on you, right? Too much and pouring out my heart. From that point on, the letters really are the letters of two people late in their life who are wrestling with these big questions of legacy. Yeah. What is my legacy? What is going to be the legacy of these people that I am caring for and caring about? And they're sharing with one another from deep in their hearts. Then there's another shift in the letters. There's a wonderful story arc here that's just in the actual letters themselves. I didn't add it. It's already there. <laughs> from pen pals to confidants. And then Blanche begins to hint that she would really like to visit mm -hmm. when she has a furlough. And so she and Warney plan this visit, this mm -hmm. furlough visit when she will come to Oxford. Now, I don't want to spoil the end of the story for you or for your listeners. And I don't want to tell you all that happens when Blanche Biggs finally arrives at the kilns in Oxford. Uh, that's the story I want you to hear in their own voices but that's the sort of story to, in fact, there's such a strong story that I've written a stage version 
of uh-huh. these letters play that's uh-huh. been now performed about eight times around the country. Uh-huh. And I'm looking for more opportunities. I hope that we'll see this on some more stages in the next uh, year or two. Yeah. One thing I think is really sweet about, about the letters is that, um, you know, I, I, I haven't read all the letters yet, but I have read the this, this section about the scandal. And um, Warren Lewis's response isn't great, right? He doesn't do a, he doesn't do a, a great job of responding to it, and kind of the way they work that out is is sweet, you know. It, it's, it, it didn't it doesn't shut down, right? She's she is she's been very vulnerable in the way she describes this situation, and his response is a little um, what's the word uh, cavalier, maybe. And he is. He's, he's a little bit dismissive at first, and then, yeah. but she doesn't give. She doesn't let him off the hook. Yeah, she doubles down and um, and really engages. And there's a level of candor, along with intellectual hospitality, hmm. that characterizes that next set of letters when they're like, "No, this is a big deal, and you need to listen to what I have to say." Yeah. Um, and yeah. then finally, he does get it, and he hmm. then invites her uh, to continue uh, to share with him the things that she is wrestling with theologically, practically, uh, as she continues her her missionary work. Yeah. Um, You have uh, referred, you said there's something sweet about this sort of gruff military, retired military man. And he does have a reputation as, Warren, Warren Lewis has a reputation of being, you know, gruff and, and, um, maybe a little negative, even some of that coming from his diaries. Um, and as, as you mentioned in the introduction, his, um, his diary was a place where its whole purpose was for him to complain a little bit, let blow off some steam uh, when in the rest of his life, he, you know, he had other, other responsibilities that maybe he couldn't be quite so, so candid. And, and, you know, there's something about these letters that helps to rehabilitate some of that. Um, and I'm just interested in, it, it got me to thinking about the questions of what is the, and, and since you do a lot of, a lot of work with um, primary sources, I know you've wrestled around with the question of what counts as evidence and evidence for what, right? I mean, a person's diary on the one hand, that seems like a window into their soul, but as you point out, it's not a window in window in, into his whole soul when the whole purpose is here's my one place that I can gripe. That doesn't mean he's a gripey person. It just means here's the one place that, that he does it. Um, do, the, do the letters have a different kind of authority and a different kind of evidentiary status? And then what about the work that, that a writer does for publication? Um, as I said, I, I bet you've done some thinking on these, these matters. So I'd love to hear you talk about it. Well, thanks. I, you are you are correct. Warren Lewis has a reputation for being kind of gruff and grumpy and critical. And I'm not going to say he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that I think that that was one aspect mm-hmm. of his a lot of personality. Yeah. Uh, and where do we get that impression? We get that impression primarily from his diaries, which have been published under the title Brothers and Friends. And the diaries are great, but I am really convinced that the diaries were not a kind of record of daily life or a balanced view of the things that were most important to him. If you think about keeping a diary, you don't 
write down everything that happened in a given day. And you don't take thought to see how you might be balancing the positive with the negative, the spiritual with the practical and so on. He used his diary, I think, very specifically to kind of get some things off his chest. And they do come across as being uh, fairly negative. The other place where we get some records about Warren Lewis is uh, around the time that C.S. Lewis died, Mm -hmm. Walter Hooper and Douglas Gresham. Uh, both had some close contact with Warren Lewis during that very, very short period of time. Now, I know that you won't be surprised to imagine that during the time of C.S. Lewis's unexpected and sudden death, his brother would be struggling, Mm -hmm. struggling with a lot of things in so many ways. They had been living together, right, for most of their life. They were best friends from their childhood. And again, I have to emphasize that Warren Lewis felt a heavy burden of responsibility to steward his brother's legacy. And he's trying to figure out how to do that now that his brother has died. It seems like no big deal for us now because everybody knows the name of C.S. Lewis. We're used to him being famous. He wasn't at the time. Uh, He was somewhat known. But fundamentally, he was a dusty college professor. And, he was on Time uh, Magazine once, though, wasn't he? Wasn't yeah. he on Time Magazine? Yeah, little little flash in the pan in terms yeah. of his uh, his fame. But Warren Lewis was really deeply um, grieved by yeah. the loss of his brother. So if you look at the diaries and you look at that season of his life, you get one particular picture. I think in these letters we get something that's a little bit more balanced. Mm-hmm. Um when one of the girls who was staying at the kilns during wartime described what it was like to live with Warney Lewis, what she says is, I think, a really remarkable summary. She says he was comfy to live with all the time. Mm. I think that he was the most gregarious and certainly the best traveled member of the Inklings. I think the Inklings had a kind of social glue because of Warren Lewis. He was Mm. um, extroverted. He was friendly. He knew everybody in the neighborhood. And he was the only inkling who'd really traveled and lived outside of England extensively. He'd lived in Shanghai. He had visited San Francisco and so on. So Mm. this is a well-traveled individual in lots of ways. Um, In these letters, we see not only the gruff and troubled Warren Lewis, but we also see a tenderness. We see him interacting in a sympathetic way. We see him functioning as an encourager and a resonator for Mm -hmm. Blanche, particularly Mm -hmm. if she's trying to think about whether or not she might ever write a book. Uh, We also see a little bit of a picture of his spiritual life, his devotional life. Yeah. I mean, when we think about Warren Lewis, we don't think about him as the letters show. We don't think about him getting up at 6 a.m., making a cup of tea, sitting down to have his morning devotions, Mm -hmm. and what his devotional reading might have looked like. He and Blanche share a little bit about that almost um, silent, almost secret, private aspect of his personal devotional life. Uh, and, And I like that. I like that we see him in these quieter, more spiritually orient- oriented moments. Yeah, yeah. And they they have their little debates over being ecumenical or being, um, you know, he was not as open to ecumenicism as, as 
she had to be in her setting. Um, There's that that is, I think, in many ways, one of the key themes of the letters. It's something that they come back to again and again. And it leads to something that I call the miracle at the heart of the major and the missionary. So Blanche is on the mission field, and part of her initiative is to get as many different Christian groups as possible working together in order to reach those who don't yet know Jesus. Mm -hmm. Warren Lewis, on the other hand, is looking at a proposal to for the Methodists and the Anglican churches to combine. And he's horrified by this idea because he doesn't see that there's any way to do that without watering down doctrine. So she keeps at him again and again, talking about how important it is for Christian groups to work together. And he mm -hmm. keeps coming back again and again about the issue of doctrinal purity. We mm -hmm. can't compromise on the fundamental beliefs that we have. But here's the miracle. So Warren Lewis is in the hospital at one point uh, during the course of these letters. And while he is there, he has a really unusual experience, an unusual encounter, what I call the miracle. So as, a, as someone from Northern Ireland, Lewis has grown up in a situation where Protestant and Catholic are constantly at each other, other's throats. It's just part of the culture. And he is dealing throughout these letters with the um, immediate and violent impact of what are called the troubles, mm -hmm. the bombings and the shootings and the strife that's happening in Northern Ireland between Catholic and Protestant. When he's in the hospital, he ends up becoming friends with some of the nurses and they get to know one another rather well because he's there for a little bit of time. And they, they end up getting together one evening for what he calls a coffee party, <laughs> <laughs> which may have involved a little alcohol. I okay. can't verify uh, that for sure. Yeah. But they get together for a little coffee party in the nurse's station after hours. And it turns out that sitting there in person, face to face in the nurse's station are representatives from both sides of the Northern Irish conflict. There are people who strongly believe one way, strongly believe another. There are Catholics and there are Protestants, and there they are all sitting together, enjoying one another's company face to face. And Warren Lewis literally has an epiphany. And he writes to Blanche about this little get together. And he says, if only there were a little bit more get together, face-to-face, <laughs> -face conversation, maybe some of these other issues would be resolved. So he realizes that there's a big difference between fighting on the level of ideas <laughs> and actually being together with one another, listening to one another's hearts, getting to know one another personally, getting to know not only what someone believes, but why they believe it. And he is transformed by this. This mm -hmm. changes him. You can see it in the letters as he goes forward. He has to rethink a lot of his older prejudices and mm -hmm. assumptions about people who he once called his enemies, not because he's been won over by an academic argument, yeah. but because he's actually met individuals who incarnate values that he never quite understood before. Mm -hmm. So good.
Dana, you mentioned resonators a minute ago, and I'd, I'd love for you, I love that idea, um, and maybe some of our uh, listeners won't be familiar with that idea. So what do you mean when, when you say that, that uh, Warren Lewis was a resonator for Blanche Biggs? Yeah, so a resonator is somebody who catches the vision for what you're doing, right? They understand fundamentally what it is you're doing, and they commit to kind of companioning with you in the process of bringing that to pass. Mm -hmm. So it's different from encouragement, which puts courage into the author, or it's different from praise, which is noticing the good things about the work. A resonator is somebody who basically feeds back uh, and gives clarity to the fundamental ideas. And so in Blanche's first letter, letter number one, She's asking what she should do with her letters and papers. She suspects that her letters and papers might be useful in the future. Mm -hmm. She says, even after my death, not because of their merit in themselves, but I have been a missionary doctor and I've seen this territory develop right under my nose. It's just a question of whether when the time comes for me to resign, I should have a grand bonfire or hand this over to the missionary authorities to use as they will. And then she says, I doubt if I have the ability at my age to write anything myself because I am nearing 60. And so Warren writes back specifically, and he follows three different functions in his response. He encourages her and resonates with her, I think, in the same way that the Inklings resonated for him. Uh, he gets what she's trying to say. He catches the vision for her project. Mm -hmm. And he says this, Warren, this is from his letter. He says, as regard your own material, I would urge you neither to burn it or hand it over to anyone else, but retain it. And when you retire, have a go at making a book out of it yourself. I can see from your letter that you're the kind of person who would have no difficulty in writing. And besides, I regard nearing 60 as middle age, <laughs> being myself 73. And I had no experience in writing when I got my first book published at 58. <laughs> and my seventh and last was written when I was 69. So he gets what she's trying to say and he expands the vision. He says, well, don't burn it. Don't give it to somebody else. You've got a book in you. Mm -hmm. He catches that yeah. vision and he encourages her in that, tells her to go for it, that she has what it takes and that there's a place in the world for her work. But you notice he also offers himself as a role model. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things that writers need. It's so important. So Remember that when Warren Lewis joined the Inklings, he hadn't written a book, he hadn't published a book, but then he starts hanging around with Charles Williams and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And as a result of the company he keeps, yeah. <laughs> he starts writing and he ends up publishing uh, the seven books that are, they're extraordinary books, they're great books, but he does it because the writing life is something that he catches by example, but then you'll notice he offers himself as an example to encourage someone else who hasn't written a book ever. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's cool? She does go and she writes a book. She keeps the letters and she gives them to the Wade Center, but she also keeps her newsletters from the mission field. And she uses that as the material to write a book 
late in her life called From Papua with Love. Hmm. And so she becomes an author because of the example that he has been as an author encouraging her as he himself has been encouraged by the company he kept. Oh, I love it. (laughs) I'm going to change the subject a little bit. Okay. Um, and ask you, did did you have any qualms about publishing writing that was not written with an eye to publication? Mm, that's a really good question. Maybe I should have had uh, some <laughs> qualms, <laughs> um, but I didn't because I got so excited about introducing the world to these two extraordinary individuals. So think about this. Um Blanche saved these letters and donated them to Mm -hmm. the research center at uh, Wheaton College. So in that sense, they're already public. Mm -hmm. They're already available to researchers, and she intended them to be. Second, Warren was a historian. And remember that he edited and published his brother's letters, which were not written for publication. Now we have the big three-volume set Mm -hmm. edited by Walter Hooper, almost 4,000 C.S. Lewis letters that had been gathered and collected and published. So this idea of publishing letters uh, is something I think that Warren Lewis would have been very um, sympathetic to. And and then finally, I would have to say, uh, when I discovered these letters and started working with them to annotate them, I was really privileged to connect with Blanche Biggs's godson, mm-hmm. her nephew, John Biggs, And he was incredibly supportive and generous. So a lot of the questions that I had about references in the letters, Mm -hmm. he was able to answer for me. And a lot of questions that I had just even about getting these things published, he was able to, he was incredibly enthusiastic that his aunt's legacy would become something that other people could share in and learn about. So John Biggs wrote uh, the foreword Uh to the major and the missionary, and he's been incredibly uh, supportive of making sure that these got out. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Had he read uh, the letters before you read the letters? Had had he already read them? No. No, he didn't. He didn't uh, have access to them before. And so I was able to share those with him. And that was really quite a extraordinary experience, as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. Well, I asked the question because, you know, when when uh, Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal was published a few years ago, I had really mixed feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, she was only 20 or 21 or something when she when she wrote this. And boy, if somebody published any journals of mine from from when I was 20 or 21, that, that would hurt my feelings <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, I now, think I there's Flannery O'Connor, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That would be true. That's a good observation. <laughs> um, I think that there are going to be some things in the letters that are going to be upsetting. Um, Warren Lewis struggles with violent thoughts about mm-hmm. the troubles in Northern Ireland, and that's unfortunate. There's some use of language and some criticisms and references to the native uh, people of Papua New Guinea mm-hmm. that are not expressed in language that we would use these days. Uh, In that sense, it's a little bit unvarnished. Uh, I hope that people will understand this as an artifact of its time Mm -hmm. and grant these people grace as representatives of a period in time when we talked about things differently. And I think that that, that there needs to be always a little bit of grace 
an understanding of that larger context when we evaluate something like this. But I also think it's incredibly important for us to have firsthand accounts. Uh, Sometimes history or historical events get muddied by too many scholars with too many interpretations. And I think that it's, there's something very rare and precious about having access to the actual people's own words. And so I'm grateful for that. I just hope that people will look at larger context as they are assessing um, the the good aspects, the positive aspects, and the troubling aspects of these two individuals. Yeah. You say um, in the introduction that you are that your life was changed by getting the story in the words of the of the principles. How how would you say that that, that was life changing to read this story in their words? Uh, it's it sounds maybe a little over the top to say that my life has changed, but I absolutely mean it. I absolutely mean it. And, and here's why. I think that all of us. Uh, go through seasons in life, maybe a moment in life when we wonder whether anything that we've ever done really matters, whether whether the things we've invested our life energy in is ever going to amount to anything. Um, I I think sometimes we just get to a point where we ask, what was the point of all this stuff that I've done? And will anybody ever see uh, who I really am and what I've accomplished? And And so the fact that these letters exist uh, and that I have a chance to tell their story, Blanche mentions in her very first letter, these letters might be useful even after my death. The fact that these letters exist and I've had a chance to share them gives me hope Mm. that somehow what I've done will somehow be meaningful to someone some time in the future. In editing these letters, I'm that someone who read these letters in a library on a cold Chicago morning Mm -hmm. and saw something in them that was remarkable. That fact, that, that transaction gives me hope that maybe someday someone will pick up a book I've published or listen to a podcast I've recorded. Yeah. And some phrase, some idea, some insight might make a lasting difference for them. And that what I've worked on, what I've done isn't in vain, that I can trust the Lord and I can trust um, the work itself, hmm. that somehow some things that I've done will will matter. Uh, and that somehow, <laughs> somehow I'll be seen even after my death. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm going to switch up my usual last question. Usually I ask who are the writers that make you want to write? You've answered this question before, I think, last time you were on this podcast. So I'm going to ask you to talk about the last, the last sentence in your whole book from the acknowledgments page. I love reading your acknowledgments page. So much of your work has been about um, the relational aspects of writing, right? The uh, the company, the company they keep is that. Am I getting that that title right? Yeah. Uh, about the Inklings, the Bander, Bandersnatch, which I I found so helpful in its various ways of talking about how writers can can support one another. I, I love that book. 
Um, and I see from your acknowledgments that you practice what you preach, right? There are a lot of groups of writers and, and, and other, you know, let's just say groups of people who've had a, a hand in the work you do and you acknowledge them. And then you end your acknowledgments with a sentence that I'd love to hear you talk about. You say, without prayer, there would be no books. Um, um, and I think I think you're acknowledging some people who pray for you, but you may mean other things too. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so when I talk about the inklings, one of the questions that comes up most often, one of the inevitable questions is people always ask whether I have a writing group. Mm-hmm. And I do have a writing group in that I have a group of writers that I meet with uh, twice a month and have for more than 25 years. Mm. But unlike most writing groups, we don't critique each other's manuscripts in process, progress. Uh, the group, we call ourselves the Ninos because okay. we started the group during an El Nino downpour here in Southern <laughs> California. And because rain is a wonderful sign of the blessings of God, mm-hmm. but also the idea of a Nino or a child encourages us to maintain a childlike sense of wonder in the work that we do. So this group of writers has been meeting for a long, long time. We get together twice a month and we pray for each other. And that's primarily what we do. We're a prayer group that actually gets together to spend time, not only in fellowship, but in serious prayer for one another, but not generic prayer, not prayer requests for the larger aspects of our lives. We emphasize in the Ninos that those kinds of prayer requests, we need to have friends and we need to have a church and we need to have other kinds of bodies uh, that support us in our general well-being. But the Ninos pray very specifically. Our question as we pray, as we go around the circle and we pray for each other, our question is always this. What is God asking you to do that you know you cannot do in your own strength? So the existence of the Ninos is to ask for God's help in those things that we know we cannot do in our own strength. Mm -hmm. And that includes, for me, traveling around the world and speaking. I'm not a sturdy traveler, and that's always Mm -hmm. intimidating for me. That includes things like having the persistence to try to get these letters published, to find a publisher that could catch a vision for how extraordinary Blanche and Warren are and what a wonderful story their letters tell. I'd have given up a long time ago Mm. if it hadn't been for the prayers of people who surrounded me and laid hands on me and prayed for me and said, give Diana persistence, (laughs) give her hope that she should keep trying, she should keep reaching, she should keep doing. And I have to tell you, a lot of times when with different projects, you know that you know this story, Jonathan. You start, you show up at the work and and you're working on it, and year after year, and it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And you don't need practical advice. <laughs> you need somebody to give you some hope yeah. that any of this is going to amount to something and that there's a point in persisting. And so Without prayer, there would be no books because I would have given up a long time ago. Mm. We pray for finding the right publisher, for books to be released at the right time, for making connections with good people like you who will give us an opportunity to talk about the work that we do. These things happen because God moves, 
because we ask and we persistently ask for God to bless the work of our hands and God does. Mm. And we've seen it over and over again within our circle. So many books published, articles, poetry, dissertations finished. And then we have some visual artists and musicians Mm. in our group. And they've also seen remarkable things that happen in the, as a result of this wonderful, um, supportive, praying group of saints. Mm. And so I'm very, very grateful to the Ninos. Without the Ninos, there would be no books. Uh, how many Ninos are there, by the way? Uh, a typical meeting, like uh, most of these kinds of small groups, is about five or six, maybe as mm-hmm. many as eight. But there are probably 35 people who've cycled through or been part of the group or consider themselves members of the Ninos. Yeah. Without prayer, there would be no books. I need to get that cross-stitched on a pillow or something. That's that's so good. <laughs> I love it. Dana Glyer, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm I am uh, so glad that you uh, rescued these uh, these letters from the archive and are finding a, a wider audience. I hope a lot of people read them. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. It's always fun to talk with you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.